We are going to be looking today at the book of 1 Thessalonians. So we're getting close uh, to finishing this up. We'll be in verses chapter 5, verses 16 through 22. If you'd like to turn there, the text is also printed in your bulletin. I have to start... Um, I've got to start with a basketball story, and, and my apologies for another basketball story. I am about to go on vacation, so maybe I'll catch up on my Jane Eyre. Um, you, can, you can pray for me along those lines. Uh, but but you, you almost have to tell the story of something that happened this week in the, the first game of the NBA Finals. So um, the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Golden State Warriors are in the NBA Finals. Uh, Golden State is huge favorites. Um, yeah, thanks. Golden State State is huge favorites, but in the first game of the finals, I'm going to wait because that's going to make me crazy. Do I need to say something again? Oh, okay. All right, is that better? Can you hear me now? Okay. It's still basketball. (laughs) There was this Georgia football game one time. Um, Keep going. Keep going. You don't know which one I'm going to talk about. Um, Cleveland Golden State are playing. Golden State is huge favorites, but the very first game in Golden State, LeBron James scores 50-something points. It looks like they have a chance to, to actually steal a win incredibly on the road. It's the very end of the game. Cleveland is down by one. They're shooting free throws with four seconds left. All right. Uh, the guy goes to the line. He makes the first free throw. It's a tie game. He's shooting the second free throw. He misses it, but incredibly, Cleveland somehow gets the, re- gets the rebound. J.R. Smith gets a rebound right under the basket, and you think, well, he's just going to put this back up, and they're going to win the game. Instead, he turns, and he dribbles the ball toward half court. And the whole stadium is like, what, what, are, you, what are you doing? And LeBron has this look on his face that's going to be in more memes than the crying Jordan meme, if you know what I'm talking about. He's like, we, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. And apparently what had happened was that J.R. Smith had lost track of the score in game one of the NBA Finals, and he thought they were ahead, and he was just trying to run out the clock. And so by the time they get a shot off, it's too late. They missed the shot. The game is still tied. They go into overtime, and it's just like one of those moments you can't overcome, like mentally and emotionally. And they, they lose by 10 points in overtime. Uh, and there, there, are, there are so many ways I could go uh, to talk about this. You know, one is, is uh, the way you see sort of our culture of shame and the way the Internet explodes and how it would feel to be that guy the next day, just with the whole world kind of laughing at you and, and making fun of you. But, but what I want to ask is to, to get us started is if, if you were in his shoes – if you're J.R. Smith, like what, is, what does he do that night, the next day, to deal with that sense of failure and shame? Like, you know, does he, he has kind of a reputation of being kind of a, a pothead, honestly. I don't know if he is. But, but does he rejoice that marijuana is legal in a lot of states and just kind of go and, and smoke his cares away in, in that way? Does he give thanks that, well... At least I have millions of dollars and, and, and I'm going to be okay. Where does he seek help? Does he, does he turn within? Does he call somebody else you know, like a Chris Weber who's had that happen to them in a very dramatic situation? You know, what, what voices does he listen to? Does he 
pay attention to what people on Twitter are saying? Uh, does he listen to, to what's got to be negative self-talk, that, that, you know, that these things that are going through his head? How does he deal with all of that? How does he deal with the enormity of that moment? Now, in the grand scheme of things, we all know that, that we'll forget about this, he'll forget about this. It's, it's not the biggest deal in the world. But I want to ask us, as we think about how he might deal with his sense of shame and failure, how do you deal with your J.R. Smith moments? How do you deal with your own sense of shame and failure? Or, or more broadly, perhaps, what do I do, where do I go when things are, just go badly for me? When, when we don't get the job that we wanted? When we don't get into the school we wanted to get into? When, when things are not going well with our children? When we've blown it badly? When, when the news coming to us just isn't good? At, at those moments... When, when, you're, when you're dealing with those kind of emotions, what do you rejoice in? Where do, you, where do you go in the middle of all that to find joy? What do you give thanks for? Where do you turn for help? You know, what, are, what are the voices that you listen to? And I think the answers that we give to all of those questions uh, point us to our functional saviors, don't they? they? They point us to what our functional saviors are. And the word of God today points us to the real savior, to the only savior where we can actually find rest. And so we're going to read this together. I'm going to read this for us. First uh, Thessalonians 5, verses 16 through 22. This is God's word. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Let's pray. Father, help us uh, as we look to your word now. I pray that you would help me to communicate it clearly. Uh, Holy Spirit, I, I pray that you would come and that you would work both in my speaking and in our hearing and in our hearts. Uh, for Father, uh, if the Spirit does not come, then uh, this is wasted time, whether it's entertaining or boring. Either way, it will be wasted if you, Holy Spirit, uh, do not work. And so we pray for that now, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, again, the answers that you give to the hypothetical questions that I just raised point us to our functional saviors. They, they point us to the things that are serving as gods in our lives. They point us to the things that we look to, the things we confide in, the things that we rely on when things aren't going the way that we would like for them to go. And these verses call us to cry out to God and to listen to God's voice and to give thanks to God and to rejoice. Uh, and I think implied here is what Paul makes explicit in um, Philippians, that we rejoice in the Lord. That, that these voices, excuse me, these verses are calling us as individuals and as the Christian community in good times and in bad to a God-focused God, God connected life that is marked by joy 
and thanksgiving and prayer and listening to God's word. And so whether we've just blown the game or we've just gotten turned down by the person we wanted to go out with or just received the phone call with news we didn't want to hear, these verses call us toward the God who loves us. Uh, So four things here, four instructions from Paul. Uh, First of all, he tells us to rejoice always. To rejoice always. Uh, What are some of the things that we rejoice in? Think about some of the things that we rejoice in. Emma and and, uh, Jack and Susan and Susan's mom went to see Hamilton last week. And I asked Emma, like, well, how was it? Because she's the, the big Hamilton fan in the family. And she said it was pretty lit. Which I think is how the kids these days express joy. It's, it's, it's something along those lines. We, we rejoice in good news from the doctor, right? We rejoice in the birth of a new child. Uh, we rejoice when we see something amazing in creation. We rejoice in all of these things. And all these things are things we should rejoice in, right? They, they bring us joy. They are, they are gifts that our Father has given us and calls us to enjoy and so we should enjoy them but if you think about it our joy in all these things is at least in some way tied into our circumstances and our circumstances change don't they and so there are those times when things aren't going well when we have failed when we do feel shame when we have the blues when we're when we're tired when we're when we're hungry when we're just frustrated with with dealing with the difficulties of life, and so we mourn, and we doubt, uh, and we sigh, and we grieve, and we get angry. Christians experience an array of emotions. We don't just flatline life. We experience an array of emotions as we deal with the difficulties of living in a fallen world. You can see that in the Psalms. Uh, the, the dudes that wrote the Psalms, like they are not just always happy. Paul recognizes this in the book of Romans. He tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice, but also to mourn and to weep with those who weep. Uh, He talks of despairing of life itself. So a Christian is not somebody who's always walking around life with a smile plastered on his or her face and who ends every sentence by saying, I'm blessed. Okay, that, that that is not the normal Christian life. And you say, but Justin, you just read, Paul said, rejoice always. And that's right, he does say that. And, and right after this, he, he says, pray without ceasing. And yet, Paul obviously took time out from prayer to write this letter. Okay? He, was, he was not praying 24 hours a day. And the point is not... In this passage, the point is not that you and I have to be praying happily uh, every waking hour of our lives. Uh, In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about being sorrowful, yet rejoicing. Uh, We saw earlier in uh, Thessalonians that we weep, but we grieve, but not as those without hope. And so, how those things fit together? How are we sorrowful and yet Rejoicing. What's, what's Scripture actually calling us to when it's calling us to uh, rejoice always? Uh, Will had a, a music technology class this year, and in this class, they would lay down beats. 
All right, and if you don't know what that is, he'll have to tell you what that is. Um, but, but basically, it's, it's samples of music, and, and think kind of of rap music tracks. And you know in, in a lot of rap music, you'll have the same bass note repeated over and over again, kind of through the song. It's the same thing that keeps being repeated. Uh, those of you who are not into the rap, uh, Johnny Cash, you know, Johnny Cash... <clears throat> in, in all of his songs, he's got kind of that bum chicka bum chicka bum chicka bum, and it, like like it, he could be talking about loving his wife or shooting his wife, and it's and it's still that same bum chicka bum chicka. Like it's a repeated note throughout the whole song. All right, so you've kind of got that bass note, or you kind of got that guitar strum that that goes through the whole thing. And what Paul is telling us is that there should be this bass note, or there should be this repeated strum pattern of joy in the Christian life. Sometimes it's loud. Sometimes it's kind of quiet. Sometimes it's, it's totally absent and we have to go looking for it. And so the, the question then becomes, well, well, how do we do that in the midst of things when things aren't going right? When things aren't going well for us, how do we rejoice then? And I think where this points us is, is, is that we rejoice because we know the God who is making all things right. We know the God who is making all things right. Uh, Philippians, rejoice, we're called to rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord. And what that indicates to us is in the midst of difficult circumstances and in the the middle of sorrow, there there is an anchor of joy there for us in God himself. We find joy by learning to rejoice in God. And in who he is. And in what he intends to do in our lives and in in the lives of all his children. Uh, We're called to rejoice in him, in a person. What what does it look like to rejoice in a person? Think about those of you with young children. What what it felt like to see that child for the first time. And and the way we rejoice uh, in a young infant. We, We take joy in that person. Or think of the look on a groom's face. Uh, if, if this was an actual sanctuary, if we were having a wedding in here and the groom's standing here and the bride comes through that back door and the, when he sees her for the first time that day and he's just overcome by her beauty, you, you see his face just light up. He is rejoicing in another person. He's overcome with joy at the beauty of his bride. And so the reality for us is that all of these good gifts that God gives us to enjoy are actually sunbeams which we are meant to follow back up to the sun. They are gifts which are meant to lead us back to the giver. And so we rejoice in him. We rejoice that this isn't just a random chance universe, but there is a, a God who has created it and us for his glory. We rejoice in seeing his power and his wisdom we rejoice in his beauty. How do we see his beauty? How do we see that he's beautiful? Uh, how do we gaze at him like a, like a groom who is seeing his bride for the first time on their wedding day? There's a passage in 1 John where it says that we love because uh, he first loved us. And I think it's the same dynamic here with, with seeing God's beauty and rejoicing it. We are able to see him as beautiful to the extent that we realize that he has seen us as beautiful. That he has looked at us and he has loved us and he has sent Jesus for us in order to make us 
beautiful to be the bride of His Son. I'm able to rejoice in God when I can see Jesus looking at me and rejoicing in me, seeing my sin, and yet looking at me with joy-filled eyes and saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to die for your sin. And I'm going to do what needs to be done to make you clean and make you whole. And I'm going to make you my bride. And I'm going to commit myself to you for your good. And if we can see that, if we can see Jesus looking at us, rejoicing in us in that way, we can rejoice in Him. And we can rejoice even in the midst of the difficult things of life because we know that the one who holds our past and our present and our future is determined to love us and do good for us. So we rejoice. Uh, there's a, a movie where Eddie Murphy is sitting with his uh, little daughter at the table and they're eating breakfast and she's made him special pancakes. And these special pancakes are actually burnt pancakes. And so he's going to have to eat these burnt pancakes. And he says, well, do we have any, like, syrup or anything I can put on these? And she's like, sure. And so she goes to the refrigerator, and she brings back uh, ketchup and hot sauce and mustard and chocolate syrup. And then she puts them all on the pancakes for her dad to eat. And he's somewhat skeptical, but he prays, uh, Lord, please protect my throat as I, you know, as I partake of this meal but in the midst of all of that like she's bringing them these burnt ketchup covered pancakes and he's rejoicing in his daughter he's not mad at her he's rejoicing in his daughter I, I think so often we think man I'm just bringing God another load of burnt pancakes and he's angry with me but he is looking at us as his children with joy and delight I mean if, if we knew that if we believe that, how much rejoicing would that create in our hearts and in our lives? So we rejoice. Secondly, we pray without ceasing. Uh, we've already said this, this doesn't mean you're to be praying every single moment. But I think it does point us to a need for a greater God awareness, God consciousness in our lives. Uh, yeah, we want to guard against a pietism that would say we need to be thinking about God 24 hours a day. You know, sometimes you're, you're just fishing. You're, you're just doing your job. You're not having ecstatic spiritual experiences all day. That's okay. But, but generally speaking, I don't, I don't think that's really our problem. I don't think that's the, the, the direction we tend in. Our problem is more likely to be that we've kind of got regular life and religious life. We've got... I'm, thinking about God and then like let's just kind of over here in this box and it's not connected with everything else and so the corrective for us I think is to take this verse seriously to, to pray without ceasing and I think there are two applications for us here one is it calls us to be persistent in our prayers don't grow weary in praying for those people or those things that you've been praying for for so long and it, it doesn't seem that there's been uh, an answer Keep bugging him like Jesus tells us to in the, the parable of the persistent widow. Uh, the other is to try to make prayer and therefore God more of a part of our daily lives and, and, and just integrated in it. And here's what I mean. Uh, Emma's flying back from Missouri today uh, from training for her camp. 
And as a nervous parent, I'll be checking the flight tracker to make sure where she is and see when, when she's uh, going to land and, and all that kind of stuff. She'll, she'll be on my mind. Um, you guys know what it means when you have something going on at work that's a big deal and you would like to sort of leave that behind, but it still is kind of percolating there. It keeps coming back up in your mind. And so one of the, what I'm trying to illustrate is um, I think one of our goal is that our thoughts of God ought to become more of a constant like those things. The way our worries can, the way our concerns at work, that, that God becomes a more of our conscious thought life. Um, I, again, I'm not having to think about him 24 hours a day, but I keep coming back to him. He's not just something over here in the corner of my life. Um, how do I do that? It's prayer. Uh, Brother Lawrence was a monk. He was a soldier. He was wounded in the 30 years war. And then eventually he entered a monastery where he served in the kitchen as a cook and then as a sandal maker. And he wrote a book that's called The Practice of the Presence of God. And he basically worked all day in the monastery kitchen. And what he would do in the midst of his days, what he would take mental timeouts throughout the day to simply stop and to give praise to God. And, and he did this for so long, this stopping and just praising and howling God's name for a moment and then going back to work, that he really began to change who he was. And it changed him so much that people just wanted to be around him. And so people from all over Europe, heads of state and bishops and dignitaries would come just to spend time with Brother Lawrence. And it was just from him stopping a few times a day in the middle of what God had called him to do already and hallowing God's name, praising him. What if I could build that into my day? To just a, a few times a day, I, I, I stop and I pray to God. How, how would that affect me? Um, some of you know I lead a Bible study for, for a group of guys called F3. And uh, we were talking about something like this. And one of them shared one of, one of, I think he got this from Rick Warren, one of the things that helps him to pray throughout the day. And I wanted to, to share this with you and kind of summarize what he said um, he basically, he, he works roughly off the Lord's Prayer, and then he sets his iPhone to remind him to pray at different times of the day. So he's got 6.30, get up with gratitude. What are you, what are you grateful for? Our, our, our Father who art in heaven, I'm, I'm grateful that I can call you Father. And so he, he does this first thing in the morning when he wakes up or as part of his morning devotional. Then 8 o'clock. Bless God's name at breakfast. Hallowed be thy name. He said his trigger is he takes his kids to school. He gets to work about 8 and he has a little iPhone reminder that goes off um, at 8 o'clock. And he takes just a moment before he walks into the office to praise God there. Uh, 10 o'clock. Uh, God's will and plan for your life. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. He, he, he has a reminder set at 10. He says a lot of times he's in the middle of something at 10. But he has that reminder set up that it's going to keep coming back until he clears it. And so he takes a moment sometime mid-morning just to do that. 12 o'clock, praise for his daily bread, praise for his daily needs at lunch. That's his trigger, okay? Uh, daily bread, I'm going to pray for some of my needs. 2 o'clock, forgive us our debts and forgive our debtors. 
he stops and just prays for forgiveness for sins perhaps he's committed against his co-workers even that day. Again, he's a reminder in his phone. Five o'clock, when he comes home, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He says, pray that God helps you make good decisions as you get home from work and enter your house. Um, This can be eating, drinking TV, or as simple as keeping your spirit clean to be able to handle grumpy and tired kids. And so he, he prays in the car before he comes into the house. And then at bedtime... In the day with an encouraging truth, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. God wins at the end. Jesus has died for our sins. Thank God for all that he is and all that he's done for us. And the, the trigger for him in that is bad time. So you, you don't have to do something exactly like that, but that's just an example of a way like pray continuously. Okay, I'm not praying every single moment, but what are some little things I can do to remind myself to pray throughout today, to pray throughout each day. So we rejoice, we pray, and then Paul calls us to give thanks in all circumstances. Uh, and again, it's like the, the praying and rejoicing. It's not this constant thing, and the idea is not that you are thankful for everything that happens in your life. Okay, The psalms are filled with psalms of lament not, that, that are not... Psalms of thanksgiving. They are psalms of lament. People are upset. People are lamenting the situation that God's people have found themselves in. And so we're not called to give thanks for every circumstance, but we can give thanks in the midst of every circumstance. Um, One commentator put it this way. He says there are things we directly give thanks for. I thank God when, when a friend has come to know Jesus. There are things we indirectly give thanks for. Maybe we have a a serious illness and we give thanks knowing that that's going to aid our patients or increase our dependence on Jesus or give us an opportunity to share our faith with others. So we can be thankful at the same time that we are sorrowful and lament the illness that we have. Uh, again, it's like one of those base notes Thanksgiving is of the Christian life. Uh, Helen, <coughs> excuse me, Helen Keller, who is both deaf uh, and blind, once said, there are, there are three things I thank God for every day of my life. Thanks that he has given me knowledge of his works. Deep thanks that he has set in my darkness the light of faith. Deepest thanks that I have another life to look forward to, a life Joyous with light and flowers and heavenly song. And so what do you hear in that? She, she didn't thank God for her disability, but she thanked God in the midst of her disability. And so we, we stop and we give thanks. And if you think about that, is, is there any better antidote in a, in a cynical age than stopping and giving thanks to God for his gifts? For the, for the air that we breathe, for the food that, that we all have to eat, for a, a, a school that lets us meet and, and worship in it, for a country that, for everything that's wrong with it and all that we complain about is, is still one of the most incredible countries in the world where we have these amazing freedoms that we so often forget to be thankful for. Be thankful for our families, be thankful for our salvation in Christ. And it, it's so easy when things don't go the way we think they ought to be going for us to get angry and bitter 
and cynical. But it's hard to be cynical when you're giving thanks. It's hard to, to be cynical when you're giving thanks. Uh, so rejoicing and praying and giving thanks are, are all keys, I think, to developing this God-centeredness in our lives. Well, last thing. Paul calls us to listen to God. To listen to God. Uh, one of the places that I like to take a few minutes to pray is when I'm in the gym on the treadmill. Uh, but, but some days they have the music cranked up way too loud uh, in Planet Fitness. And, and so it's like I can't think because you have this music so loudly right now. And I could use a good set of noise-canceling earphones. But what I figured out to do during those times, I put my headphones in and I play some white noise very loudly. And so it blocks everything out and I'm able to, to work out and, and pray at the, at the same time. Y'all, there are voices coming at us from, from all over the place telling us that we need to listen to them, telling us this is what the good life is, and this is what you ought to pursue, and this is what's wrong with the world, and, and this is what you ought to be doing, um, telling us this is what should be important to you, this is what should matter to you, telling us whether we're a winner or more often telling us how much of a loser we are. And in the the midst of all of those voices, we need to hear God's voice. Well, how do we do that? Um, In in Paul's day, the canon of Scripture was not complete. The, The early Christians did not have New Testament Scriptures in their entirety like we have. And so they were dependent on the Old Testament, on the teaching of the apostles and the teaching of the prophets. And just like there were prophets in the Old Testament speaking the word of God, there were prophets in these days who proclaimed the word of God as well. But there were false prophets. And so the church had to be discerning. They had to test what they heard against previous revelation. They had, exa- they had to examine the character of those who were speaking. They had to see, does this actually match up with the gospel. And in Thessalonica, for whatever reason, it appears that the church was rejecting those who claimed to be prophets and just saying, well, we're just not going to let you guys speak. This is too much of a hassle. And so Paul says, yeah, y'all really shouldn't do that. You, you need to hear from God. Now, we don't live in, in Paul's day. Uh, Ephesians 2.20 tells us that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And once a foundation has been laid, we, we don't need to put it in place again. And so we no longer have apostles. We don't have like another Paul or Peter, and we no longer have prophets. If we did have prophets and apostles, we would actually need to test what they said and then, and then take what was consistent with God's word. And we would need to have loose-leaf Bibles, And we could just keep adding to what they had said. And the Bible would go on and on and on and on. And and some charismatic preachers actually will be honest and admit that. They'll say, yeah, you can take what these people say and it is actually the word of God. But I think what the scripture indicates to us is that the apostles and prophets were preparing us for the day when we would have a completed canon of scripture. When we would no longer need prophets. Instead, we, God's people would be guided by this book. Would be guided by the scriptures. Uh, Hebrews 1. 
Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Chapter 2 of Hebrews. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 1, uh, Paul tells Timothy to guard the deposit of the faith that has been entrusted to you. Like Here's, here's what you need to, to take care of. We are entrusting this to you. And so the the purpose of Revelation, and I think we miss this sometimes, the purpose of Revelation is to prepare the way for Jesus and to point us to Jesus and to explain to us what Jesus has done. The purpose of Revelation is not so that we can know what job we ought to take in which city. that's, That's never how this has been intended to work. Now, Can God impress something on our hearts? Yes. Can he arrange circumstances so that it looks like this is probably the direction that I need to go in? Yes, absolutely. He can do that. But all of that information is fallible. It's not infallible like the scriptures are. And really there's no indication in scripture that we ought to be running around trying to hear voices from God telling us what to do. Rather, God gives us his revelation in Scripture to guide us. This is where God speaks to us. Uh, the, the Babylon Bee recently, and they, they, they pick on everybody. They, they pick on Reformed people. They pick on charismatic people. But, but this, I think, pertains here. Uh, the title was, Man Sitting Literally Three Feet Away from Bible Asked God to Speak to Him. Okay? He has spoken to us. He has spoken to us. He has spoken to us. In his word. And so we, we listen to this. This is how we hear from God. Uh, and I know some of you I've talked to, some of you would, would, would quibble with me about this, and, and, and that's fine. Uh, some of you are into Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. He has this view that New Testament prophecy actually isn't the same as Old Testament prophecy, uh, that it's not infallible, that it's more like the Spirit just giving people impressions, and then the congregation has to evaluate those impressions. And I, I don't agree with that, but I will say that we do want people to share what uh, is on their hearts. Uh, God has given us all the Spirit, and we all come to Scripture and, and read the Scripture, and He impresses things, and we have to listen to what others say and, and ask, well, is that consistent with the Word of God? And so we don't ignore the insight of one another. But I, I, I had to say all that because of this passage uh, because what what's written here, but I think what Paul is saying, you guys need to hear from God. You need to hear from God, and we need to hear from God too. And we hear from God in the Scriptures. The the Spirit takes from the Scriptures, and He magnifies Jesus to us. He He takes from the Scriptures, and He 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 shows us how great God's love is for us. He convicts us of sin. He assures us that we are God's children. And so if you want assurance, if you want direction, if you want 
to hear from God, if you want to know how he feels about you, then you need to keep coming back again and again and listening to what God says in and through the scriptures. And what we find there is that Jesus loves sinners. That Jesus set his love on us while we were yet sinners. What if we listened to that? What if, what if, we, if we could block out everything else, all the noise, and we could really believe that Jesus loves failures, and Jesus loves people who are, who are lugging shame around, and Jesus loves people who have failed badly. What if, what if we realized that is what God thought of us? I'll, I'll close with this. Joe Novison, who's a pastor in Lookout Mountain, Tennessee, had a stepsister who he said was, was always told very untrue things about her biological father and had always felt very lonely that her biological father had never loved her. And so one day her husband uh, found her biological father's wife. And her father's wife gave her a drawing that her dad has, had always kept uh, pinned on the wall next to his bed. And he had, he had looked at this drawing every day of his life. And this drawing was of a little blonde-haired girl in a frilly blue dress sitting on a window seat. And the, her, her dad's wife said he, he looked at this every single day of his life because he had to give you up when you were born and he never saw you. So this is how he, he kept you in his mind his entire life. He looked at you and loved you every single day. And she never knew that until she was in her late 60s, that her, her father really did love her. And when she finally learned that, it completely changed everything about her life. What if you knew how God really felt about you? What if, what if you and I really believed what the, what the gospel says to, uh, says to us? What if we stopped being so busy trying to figure out our, our life plan and just listen to the gospel long enough to hear what Jesus really thinks of us? What if we believed it? What if we believed it? If we believed it, wouldn't we always rejoice and give thanks in all circumstances and pray? without ceasing, wouldn't that equip us to handle the moments of shame and failure in our own lives? Wouldn't that free us up to quit treating God like a magic eight ball? God, do you want me to do this? Yes, no. We wouldn't worry about that so much. We would know that we are loved and treasured by our Father. We would not worry that I'm going to mess up this plan and I'm going to be on plan B or C. No, 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 no. We would know that we are loved by God. And that would free us up, as Martin Luther said, to love God and do whatever you want to do. Love God and go out and, and love your neighbors in the way that God has wired you to love them and be content in that. And as you're doing that, pray 
and rejoicing and giving thanks and listening. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, I, I pray that you've spoken to us uh, through your, your preached word this morning and that you would give us ears to, to hear uh, that we would believe how much we are loved by you, that we would see that in the gospel, that we would see that in the table in a few moments, and that, Father, that love that you had for us, as we hear of it, that that would uh, give us the resources to rejoice and to give thanks and to pray without ceasing. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.